0: Welcome, this is William Evans, and you're listening to A Living World Conversation with Art Good Times. This is the fourth in a series of conversations about what he learned as he entered the realm of politics and how it was influenced by the indigenous teachers that he encountered, as well as a primary teacher for art, Dolores LaChapelle. One of the steps that occurred along your, uh, your process in the Black Hills in 1980 was when John Trudell said, we have to step into the reality of natural rights, because all yes. of the natural world has the right to exist.
1: Yes. And, and and that was what intrigued me when I came out to Colorado. I got involved uh, rather quickly with a group I heard about through uh, uh, a little newspaper down in New Mexico. It was called Earth First, and they had done an action and. I was really intrigued by the idea of putting the Earth first. That very phrase was different than anything I'd ever learned. It wasn't about Marxist, Leninist, materialist theories about uh, class structure. It wasn't about personal liberation. and uh, It was about the Earth and our relationship to it. And um, that really was powerful for me. So I, I really resonated with the idea uh, that... When Dolores, I met her, she talked about deep ecology, and the really the central premise of deep ecology is that respect for all life. Everything is alive. We need to respect it all. And really, what it harkened back to, and what Dolores talked a lot about, too, was indigenous wisdom, the animism that was what humans actually believed as spiritual practice for most of the 200,000 years we've been a species.
0: Yeah. And so, as a San Miguel County Commissioner, you were invited to speak at a conference in Boulder celebrating the uh, 200th anniversary of the uh, land office, the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was a powerful a moment for me um, I was good friends with uh, Patricia Limerick, who was the state historian and ran the Center for the American West. We, we'd uh, we'd spoken many times and, and had a strong relationship, and and so um, she invited me to represent county government in this celebration. We had twenty or thirty people on a on a panel talking about various aspects of public land management and the, the Homestead Act, the things that. Started out in the giveaway that we did. Once we conquered the country and took over the land from the indigenous people, we then gave it away to settlers to improve, to develop, and that was the uh, was a, a radical kind of move of uh, redistribution of wealth, and also was a way to settle wild west that they had taken the European uh, invaders had taken away from the people who actually owned it, but but. Patricia is a real, quite a character. She loves to have a skunk at the picnic. So, um, <laughs> here we are celebrating the anniversary, two hundredth anniversary of this uh, government agency, and we had uh, you know bigwigs, BLM, uh, you know directors and uh, government people, all kinds of folks from all different uh, levels of government uh, and, and past the leadership. And we have we began the keynote speech to begin the kickoff was from a, a, an Indian lawyer. Telling us that all the land that was uh, redistributed was stolen, that it was all owned before we even stepped uh, on the on the continent, and that uh, America would never, never really be at peace until it made reconciliation with the fact uh, of this uh, genocidal takeover that occurred. And I talked to this, uh, you know, this uh, lawyer Uh, afterwards. I said, you know, what what do you mean by reconciliation? Because I was really curious how we could move forward. It was it was okay to learn this information, but information, wisdom, that doesn't get put into action, really kind of dies in the vine. It shrivels and dries up. I mean, it doesn't do you any good to know things if you don't act on them. And so I was really looking to how we could act on what he was telling us, because this was scandalous to think about, and I had never heard anyone say that. And we would never be at peace until we made uh, reconciliation. And, and this lawyer was wonderful. He said, Art, uh, reconciliation has, he called it five parts. He said, first there's the incident, the, the, the thing that happened. In this case, uh, you know, the genocide of indigenous peoples and the takeover of their land. And then he said, after there's the incident, there's an apology. And and then after there's an apology by the perpetrator, there has to be an acceptance of the apology by the victims, or at least their their ancestor, their uh, uh, descendants. And so, then after you have an apology and an acceptance, there's some kind of restitution, reparation, some sort of of giving back for what had happened. And said, and then you get to reconciliation. And so when I when I reflected on this, I realized that. Here in Colorado, where I was living, nobody had ever, ever, in 130 years, apologized to the Ute people for their forced removal from the state of Colorado.
0: And in 1881, the Uncompagre Utes were removed from San Miguel County, where you were a county commissioner.
1: You know, that was, I I was reading, a friend of mine, a journalist up in uh, uh, Grand Junction, uh, put out a book about the... it actually was about uh, the Meeker incident, and and what uh, what I found out in reading the book and looking through the footnotes was that, indeed, uh, a role of McDonald actually physically removed uh, indigenous people from San Miguel County as part of that uh, U- um, uh, uh, forced march into Utah, and when I learned that, I was like, well, we don't have the authority to give an official apology from the state of Colorado, that's was beyond my purview, but as a county commissioner in San Miguel County, our county had the authority to make an apology directly to the Ute people, uh, the Incompagre Bandits that were in Utah now, for their forced removal from San Miguel County. So that's what we did.
0: And Roland McCook, a former Ute tribal chairman, was helpful to you in crafting your words and your thoughts when you went to Fort Duchesne on behalf of San Miguel to meet with the people of the Ute Nation there.
1: Right. I was lucky in having spent um, over a year on a reservation in Montana early in my life, and I and I understood a little bit about indigenous ways of doing things as opposed to Western. And uh, I, I learned early on that you don't move fast, you consult people. You know, when I went to the—we the, the, talked a bit about the uh, survival gathering in the Black Hills in 1980, Right. John Trudell, Russell Means, and people spoke on a big stage, but behind that stage, sitting in the back along the edges, were a lot of the elders. Yes, and if, if you didn't, if you noticed, you saw the speakers who were talking to all of us. You watched them before and after go back and talk to the elders. It was the elders who were instructing what was to be said. The people that said it were the young, powerful leaders, supposedly, but really. In indigenous ways, it's the elders who, who share the, their knowledge. And then there, it's oftentimes the, the younger leaders who actually enunciate it, say it out loud. So what I learned was I went really slow. I found an elder in Roland, and I worked, and I, and it took a long time. It took years, two or three years, uh, to get to the point of being able to share that apology with the uh, uh, youth tribe. Uh, in Utah, the uh, that was really a powerful moment, but I it couldn't have been done. I mean, we could have done it quickly, and it probably would not have even been accepted. But as it was, the tribal people there that heard it accepted it. It made it to the front page of their their newspaper, and there was only it just they just printed printed out the apology, and there really was no response except for a cut line and one of the photos in which the. The vice chair of the tribe said, Well, it's about time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'd like to have you fill in a little bit more about when you realized how important respect for the elders was.
1: Yeah. You know, um, I, I'm I was an oldest child and so I was always very respectful of my elders of my parents, and I, I followed the, the instructions they gave me. I was an obedient boy. I went into the seminary the priesthood because I, I felt like I wanted to respect what the vision of my, the spiritual vision of my family was, and uh, so I was disposed to respecting elders, and it's been a part of my personality. Uh, I was part of the bioregional movement in San Francisco, and so when I came out to Colorado, I was looking to re-inhabit the place. I didn't build a house. I didn't develop property. I re-inhabited places, and I, I still do that. I re-inhabit places that are already here. Um, I, that, that's been my my traditional way of working. And so I, I think I, I, I always have had this respect for elders that isn't really... Uh, Margaret Mead talks about when the Europeans came over, uh, people no longer trusted the elders because... Their elders didn't know what was happening. They trusted each other their own age. And then as we've gotten more developed as a culture, it's the young people we look to. Our heroes are, you know, were when I was a kid, were uh, people that were younger, that were uh, visionaries, that were singers, that were actors, that were leaders, whatever. Uh, and, and even now, with climate change, you know, uh, we're finding the young people are the ones that are leading the charge, the people that we're listening to. So... And there's been a radical change as Margaret Mead noted in in our culture uh, of, of not respecting elders but respecting people who are young and are really in touch with the world around them and so um, I think the respect for the elders uh, is is not as strong as it used to be but I think it's still important it's not that every elder is a wise person it's that many of our wa- elders are wise people and have a lot to teach us
0: well and wisdom is. As we touched on in our last conversation, if wisdom is, is power and the power to sustain, that's a filter with which to look at all the voices and all the information. Is this an authentic power to sustain? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and, you know, by having lived through, uh, you know, our lifetime—I'm 76 years old, so, quarter, you know, three-quarters of a century— I've seen a lot of changes, and I've seen a lot of things, and I've changed myself a lot. Um, I, You know, I went from a very strong believer in a Roman Catholic tradition to an earth-spirituality-based leader uh, believes in science and spirit, uh, a combination of marriage. And so I think if we have the opportunity to pay attention, to listen, again that, that trope of listening is so important, in our lives, I think, if we listen to other people, particularly our elders, but also our young people, we start to listen to people and hear what they're saying and try to understand it, I think we just all grow wiser. We really reach that, that critical mass of wisdom that can help communities grow and thrive and sustain themselves.
0: You're listening to a Living World Conversation with Art Goodtimes, and he's going to tell us about how he progressed through his growth, into leading a process of apology to the Ute Nation for their removal, specifically from San Miguel County.
1: You know, you know the apology was like words on the paper. It's not much of anything. So while I, I, was, I was really intrigued, Uh, that we had never apologized and was able to catalyze after a couple years. And because I had been a commissioner for 18 years, um, I was able, the last two years of my my time in office, I was able to commend not only my other commissioners, but the community at large, of the importance of making this outreach to uh, the youth people. And as it turns out, in Colorado, we have two youth tribes that were moved up from New Mexico and that now inhabit the southern portion of the state and are not that far away from San Miguel County and are our neighbors, really. Right. Then we have the youth people that actually lived in this area who were moved off to Utah. So there, there are actually three different youth tribes that um, exist in our region. And So making an apology to one of them, to a, not even the entire tribe, but to one band of the tribe that actually lived in this area, was a start. But like the Indian lawyer at that conference told me, the reconciliation involved an apology, an acceptance, and then a rep- reparation, restitution, some sort of relationship building. And so what I am proud of is that in office we began that process. We, we had long stopped celebrating Columbus Day back in the 90s. We, we made the change when I became a commissioner to uh, Indigenous Peoples Day. And so when we did the apology... We brought all the tribal chiefs from all three tribes to Telluride. We had a, a celebration of Indigenous People Days. We had talks by all the tribal leaders. We put up a monument in the county and one of our towns. We had all of the towns in the county have resolutions and support. We, we made a big deal of that kind of a summit coming together to begin our relationship. And so that was the start. And now we are in a process of continuing relationships deepening those relationships with programs. The Telluride Institute took on a, an indigenous program and has indigenous leaders as part of its uh, its trustees. Uh, it, it, the Bluegrass Festival just had indigenous, uh, the Sahasin, wonderful uh, Dineh, uh music group, lead the, the bluegrass uh, event this year. Uh, the Telluride is doing a lot now, and so are many other communities, in trying to reach out and make kinds of reparation, like getting rid of mascots, uh, changing names of mountains. There are communities all over the country that are doing that, and we're proud that Telluride has been part of that.
0: I want to go back to uh, to your relationship in this process with Roland McCook. Hmm. I'm I'm impressed with how skillfully he stands and speaks on what was Ute ground. Um, yes which is now controlled by our dominant culture. But he explains to us, he's entrusting us, those of us who now live in these mountains, to care for the land in the same ways as his people did, in a yeah. good way. Yes.
1: Yeah. You know, that. That's, that's why I ended up gravitating towards Roland when I met him. As I... Uh, uh, politics on the reservation or Byzantine <laughs> i learned <laughs> that early on when i when i when i got to the crow reservation back in the 60s a previous cohort of uh, of, of vistas had uh, uh, had and managed to uh create half the reservation uh, as enemies because one of the vistas broke up a marriage and married one of the uh crow elders one of the leaders and um uh, and and, and this, and, and half the reservation hated vistas right off the bat so I, I, I realized that in tribal societies there's often a lot more personal relationships good and bad and so there're oftentimes feuds and things going on that you don't understand if you don't if you aren't part of the tribe and uh, so it's always dangerous to step in and side with one person because when you do that you've already made enemies that you didn't even know about right. So, it took me a long time to realize that Roland had a good heart, and he was the one I wanted to work with. And when I did that, I, I surrendered a lot of my, you know, pushing to his thoughts and his ideas. And we did his wording for our monument. It's very soft. It doesn't talk about the bad things that happened. It talked about the beautiful things of the past and how, just as you say, he, he was hoping that we as caretakers of the land would treat it with as much respect as the youth people did. Right. So that that was a beautiful vision that I I found Roland to be part of that he really had not not anger so much although of course you're, you you have you can't not be a little bit angry at the injustices but his heart wasn't full of anger it was full of love. He wanted to see the relationship with the natural world grow stronger. Not a relationship of disharmony between people.
0: You learned a lot by experience and by studying and by listening, so that as an activist, when you turned your knowledge into action, you had some real awareness and the ability to listen to who you were dealing with.
1: It was a great gift. I really considered it a gift that I was able to do that, because being in politics, I've watched as people, have, with good intentions, oftentimes did the wrong thing. They made big mistakes. And if I hadn't spent time as a VISTA volunteer, if I hadn't spent time as an American Indian movement uh, sympathizer, if I hadn't studied about history and learned about things, if I hadn't reached out and listened to the elders in my area, I, I never could have done any of the work I've done. So I feel like I've been gifted to be able to do that. And I think, if people open their hearts, they can find similar gifts in their life.
0: Oh, I have memories of that. I'm thinking of a time when I was up on, on the flat tops with a Ute elder, and the two of us went up and, and spent the night, and there'd been some rain, and I took my ponchos that had covered my sleeping bag and hung them over a bush to dry Mm. And then another elder showed up, and by that time, I, my ponchos were dry, but the bushes had gotten scorched with that oh. heat mm. penetrating my ponchos, and I hadn't noticed. But the Whoa. but the new elder who showed up said, uh, "What happened to those bushes?" and clifford clifford didn't didn't miss a beat he just said oh will did that and i thought wow i didn't even know i had done it and that was indicative at that time of my level of disconnection and insensitivity to the life around me
1: and and again you know what i find is you know it's hard to have compassion yourself as well as people around you. So it wasn't intentional. You didn't intend that. This was an opportunity for you to learn. So Clifford gave you the opportunity by by doing that and, and not by castigating you, just by telling the truth of what happened. He made you aware of it without insulting you. What a lovely way to teach. And that's what I love about my indigenous uh, wisdom people that I've met and that I listen to is that they don't try to embarrass you like we do. I always try to embarrass my enemies. Uh, what are the Democrats doing now? They're they're sending out flyers, uh, touting the most extreme Republican in the primary and supporting the most extreme in the thought that they will be able to beat them in the in the in the, in the, in the, in the actual election. How deceptive and and silly is that? I think uh, it's really sad that that's the way. We, as Western people, operate. We try to destroy people we don't agree with. Whereas the wonderful part about indigenous wisdom is that they often try to bring you to awareness without embarrassing them.
0: Yeah, and it, it is an unforgettable experience and opportunity to grow. So after you apologize to the Ute Nation, you continue the process of healing and reconciliation and are building relationships through land acknowledgements. Tell us more about those, Art.
1: Yeah, that's been one of the the tropes that have been happening around the country, is that uh, organizations, particularly arts organizations, and the arts are often leaders in our culture, the arts organizations, oftentimes when they have events now, they will begin with a land acknowledgement of where they are, the land of the people that inhabited the land before them. Not that you can give the land back. It's it's not possible, really. What we can do is recognize what happened. Donna Haraway, one of the feminist scholars I love, in her book, Staying with the Trouble, says we can't not talk about what happened. We don't have to focus on it and make it the the center of our attention. We need to stay with the troubles, but move forward together into the future. And that's really what... Leaders like Manuel Hart on the uh, Ute Mountain Ute Reservation and Regina uh, Lopez-Whitestonk, who's, who's been a great friend of Telluride, um, has really helped us understand a lot of Indigenous issues. It's people like that who are reaching out to us, and we are reaching back to them, and we are starting to form a relationship, uh, an understanding with each other. We stay with the trouble. Yes, there was a genocide. But we don't focus on the genocide. We focus on the fact that we are coming together now, understanding better what happened and why it happened.
0: So John Trudell's closing words at Black Hills in 1980 were, we must act out of love for our people. We must always act out of love for the people and for the earth. Never react out of hatred for those who have no sense.
1: Isn't, isn't that—it's it's it's, it's very similar to the Christian teaching of turn the other cheek. But if you looked at World War II, we had Christians on both sides of that war doing just the opposite, trying to kill each other. And so to see the indigenous people actually live out this compassion, this understanding that if, we move, if, we, if our hearts are full of love and not anger and, and hate, then what we manifest in the world will be love, not anger, and not hate.
0: Right. Healing brings together what's separated, whether within ourselves, our relationships with other beings, or between ourselves and our living world story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. uh, You know, I love the way Dolores would talk about things. In, in the world, and, and uh, he said, you know, you, it isn't really about discovering things. And, you know, I was always uh, 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 admiring, as an Italian-American, I always admired Columbus. He discovered America, of course, didn't he? Sure. But really, what, what what's true is that nature, which what Dolores would say, is nature affords us the opportunity to learn. So what it is, is when things happen, whether they're good or bad, they, they afford us the opportunity to learn. We can look at the challenge of, of a bad thing happening and see how we can change our lives to, to, to heal that or to uh, mitigate it or to help people get through it. Whatever that kind of compassionate action may be, whatever tact we take, that is really uh, born out of love. And if we operate out of that space, if we operate out of that compassionate space, as so many of the wiser Indigenous elders do, that's beautiful. Now, there are also some Indigenous people who are still angry. And you know what? That's, that's all right. There, there's a justifiable anger. Right. Our, our response to that anger shouldn't be anger at them or anger even at what happened. It should be a way to form relationships of love and to heal that anger. And so staying with the trouble is a way of healing. Land acknowledgement is a way of healing. Changing our mascot is a way of healing. All of these are pathways that I'm really, you know, at the same time that we see so much dysfunction in the political landscape, at the same time, all power to the paradox, as my poet friend would say, uh, we see this wonderful movement of recognition and respect for indigenous people. And that gives me great hope.
0: Thank you, Art. Think you will. You've been listening to Art Good Times explain how healing came out between the government of his county and the Uncompahgre Band of the Ute Nation, and it continues with a building of relationships and land acknowledgments. This is KDNK. and Thank you for listening.